Good day and the warmest welcome. Today we have Standard Bank's Alphys Hines. He's talking all things related to cybersecurity and how you can go about protecting your information. Now, Alphys is currently the Chief Information Security Officer for the Standard Bank Group's international wholesale clients. And he has over 20 years of experience within the field of cybersecurity. And he successfully implemented multi-million pound transformative security programs across a range of industries, including fintech, banking, utilities, transport, home and security, defense, and also major sporting events. He's also improving his skills, currently studying towards his master's degree at St. Andrews University, Scotland, where he's specializing in cybercrime and cyber terrorism. If I may start with one phrase, if we can take away, security is everybody's business. We all got skin in the game. You know, from the day that you're born almost now, you have a digital profile and that profile is under attack continuously 24 seven. A lot of people have heard about ransomware in terms of people locking up your information and then basically bribing you to to pay them so you can get your access to information or not to disclose information. The cybersecurity space is broad and and it is deep. So if we look at that landscape, you can say we're all involved in it. Corporates, as well as individuals. The number of attackers are increasing. The opportunity to attack, to go after what you see as valuable assets or information is increasing. So what are you actually seeing in the landscape that there is a lowering of the barrier for entry into cybercrime? And so much of our cybercrime now is also nation state sponsored. You can say it's uh, an extension of a lot of countries' foreign policy because it's an offshoot of organized crime. Before you had the individual hacker, and you know it's been popularized in films that you have, you know, the spotty age teenager hacking for fun, but now it's a business with this whole ecosystem and it's set up along the, the lines of traditional organized crime as well. Like you had the mafia, here you would actually have specializations as well. So you have people that may specialize in hacking your systems. Then you've got another specialized group that may carry out negotiations in terms of bribery or selling your information as well. The police, sadly, and the authorities are behind the curve, always will be, in a sense. It's a, it's a catch-up game because there's been a proliferation of crime that have gone online overall. So you have traditional crime and they're using this as an extra extension. That said, one of the great weapons we have is increased awareness. And I think we're all increasingly aware that information is not only valuable in its own right, but is a tool that generates wealth for us. So, you know, in summary, I would say in so many respects, the bad guys do not know they've won yet. And that's not a pessimistic viewpoint, it's a realistic viewpoint that we need to change how we approach cybersecurity. Let's call it cyber safety. Well, so Alphys, could you give us an overview of the cybersecurity landscape as it stands today and how that impacts on ultra high net worth individuals and their families? They are targeted because if you take high net worth individuals, as you said, the incentive there is money around this as well. But as we already said, information is money and it's an access tool to your money. If we even look at how we define money now, it's a store of wealth, and it's a medium for transaction. So often that's now digitized 
if you take a bank, a bank doesn't physically store money. It has a ledger with ones and zeros on it as a representation of your wealth. Yes, we've got physical money, our, our buildings are physical assets, you may hold gold, you may hold silver as well. But a lot of these, you could say, are represented digitally on a balance sheet. So you can be hacked and you will be targeted as individuals uh, as well. Uh, and, and you also have to remember, there's a lot of reconnaissance that takes place. If I was after, say, your physical assets, I will actually profile you. I'll look at your LinkedIn. I'll look at your, try and get into your Instagram account, your Facebook account. And I build up a picture from my surveillance point of view, your footprint, where you go, what you do. And from that, I, I will to defraud you. We have phishing emails, which are sent to us. And so often we click on an email, we click into a link benignly, and we may download what we call malware. This is bad code on here. And it will start picking up your credentials. So I can get into your banking system, into your transaction system. I can spoof or imitate being you and do transactions on your behalf in my favor. Another area is what we call business email compromise. Emails are coming in, we get terabytes of emails. And uh, you know, high net worth individuals involved in business, multiple um, platforms may take, have uh, emails coming from various sources. Those emails, you do not know who you're really speaking to. You hope you're engaged in a conversation with the right person. It's the information you divulge, access that you may put in there and your credentials. Off time, that information conversation via email could be hijacked. And then you make a payment and you think you're making a payment to the correct party, but it's actually defrauding you. And you may move to an anonymous party that's interrupted, intercepted your email train overall. So you've got to remember you're valuable. High net worth individuals are valuable, not only in the money that they have per se, but in terms of their access and what they represent as well. And so often we have information that we do not disclose. You know, if we were to define what a secret is, a secret, it's not something that you want to keep from everyone at die infinitum, but it's the privilege of allowing people access to that information on your terms at a timing that's appropriate for you. And what hacking actually does or someone breaching your system is to deny you that privacy and that security and that secrecy that you may need because we're all entitled to privacy, which is a human fundamental right now. And it's, that's what's under attack as well because you have a digital profile and that profile is being hijacked and attacked and you've got to preserve the integrity of it. So, you know, there are three things that you will always be looking at. What's my confidentiality over my information? What's the integrity? And I want that information when I need that information, my availability. This is you, this is your persona that you're protecting. Don't, don't think of it as abstract, my company, my money, it is your personal persona. It's your ability to access and say the modern superhighway, the digital infrastructure. We've all got a vested stake in it now. So we've seen global legislation around information transfer. It's changed significantly over the past decade with the FATCA and CRS coming into play. In your experience, how secure is that information during its custody and then its transfer? And how can high net worth families take comfort from this? The legislation speak about some of them have come from the ISA, the inland revenue tax departments. And the first one you mentioned is very much geared around 
stopping people committing tax fraud. So they want you, and it was aimed at the US as well, they want you came from the United States to declare your assets, no matter where they're held in the world. You, you, you've got to remember, governments store terabytes of information on us overall. They are constantly diligent at trying to protect and preserve the privacy of the information that they, that they hold. Sadly, governments are in a situation sometimes where they do not have the best technologies or processes in place to protect our information because so much of cybersecurity is vested in the private world overall. So they have been strengthening their security posture, how they go about security and preserving our information, the integrity, the confidentiality and availability of it. If we stick on those themes through the introduction of better procedures, through the introduction of data privacy legislation and mandating, absolutely mandating in law, controls that need to be in place. You know, some of the controls which are applicable to governments as well as individuals and high net worth individuals as well. So much, encrypt everywhere and everything. Please do that. The ability to access your information. You know, you may have heard about uh, multi-factor authentication. That's something that you know, something that you have and something that you do to be able to get to your information. Put it in. It's almost um, a default that it comes with a lot of packages that we use. You know, if you use Microsoft, and most of us are using Microsoft, you can enable that. Please enable that overall. Your data, as I said, encrypt it and make sure it's encrypted. And we're talking to the chain of custody here at the time of acquisition, where you actually input the information the transfer of that information in flight, we call that, and how it's being stored. Ask the questions. You don't necessarily need to do it, but ask the questions if you're doing the third party. That, that is fundamental. The other key thing is know what you want to protect data. And, and this has been a vexing question for governments, for private corporations, for individuals. Know what you need to protect because we're living in a digital age, which assets, information assets are valuable and how do we go about protecting them? If you think of a house, you have a door, you have windows, you lock them at night. But not all, everything in the house is of equal value to you. You start off with your family and your loved ones. That's prime. You want to protect them first. Hence, you lock the door. They may go in their bedroom. You may lock that and you put on a security alarm. Then you may want to protect some of your possessions in there uh, as well. You may have zone security, a camera in place. You may want to take to your building. Your door's closed. You have got outside security guard. You may have patrols on top of that. That speaks to the principle of security in depth. Not just one medium, not just one control you put in place, you put in place many overall. But back to your initial question, governments are definitely focused on trying to preserve and protect your information. Uh, and you know, it's in the news, there are breaches every day. We're almost normalized to huge data breaches. And some of those have come from, from governments overall, because remember, they're not only being attacked by organized crimes, individuals, but also other nation states. So if you take the high net worth individual, you're not only of interest to an individual, criminal or organized crime, you're also interested, there's an interest in you from the state as well. How do families go about creating and implementing a security plan? And uh, what advice would you give them? I would not take that task yourself. There are third parties that specialize within this area, 
and I'll co-op their expertise overall. Uh, and, you know, being geospatial operating globally, there are different threats that you'll be, that you'll have to contend with. You know, the threat in China is different to the threat in the United States. However, where we store our information, if I get back to that initial theme again, know what you need to protect, understanding that you ultimately have the responsibility of protecting your information, your assets, your loved ones, both in the digital and the physical realm overall. So the first thing really is to say, well, what's my risk? Who, who may be looking at me? What's my threat profile? Because there's not an infinite amount of money to spend on security, and it shouldn't be. It's just another risk to manage overall. And you, you've got to ask yourself, you know, I need to put in place controls that are proportionate to my threat. Have I had, for example, ransomware, people trying to encrypt my information? A lot of the time it's scattergun, but we also have targeted, say, phishing emails. They're targeted at you, targeted at high net worth individuals and senior people in corporations. Have I received any of these overall? Have Has anyone tried to hack into my system? You can do that forensically, ask teams to come and look and monitor who's trying to, to look at me at this time. I definitely say one of the key starting points is look at your public information. What is on your website, if you've got one? What is on your LinkedIn profile? What is on your Facebook? How much information do I give away freely each day? And what does this say about me? So be guarded, first and foremost, about what is public and the information you put in the public realm. Secondly, understand what you want to protect and laser focus on that overall. Thirdly, get the basics correct as well. We've got a phrase at being, you know, good at the basics, being excellent at the basics. As I go back to, encrypt your information that you see is valuable. So it's difficult to get hold of. In terms of accessing this information, please use multi-factor authentication. Something you know, something you have, something you do. Make it hard for someone to get in there uh, overall. You, you can definitely do that. Surveillance in terms of the simple monitoring tools. And there is one that people get profoundly wrong all the time. They take a password and they'll use that across their platform. They'll use it for their banking. They'll use it for their Facebook. They'll use it for their LinkedIn. You know, I, I'm passionate about it because why would you do that? And then the other thing is the password gets weaker as the more passwords they put in. You know, one, two, three, four, cat. They use their mother's name, their daughter's name. They may use their business name. Then they use their date of birth. These are easy to brute force and hack. Please do not do it. One of the things that we have now is passwordless technology. If you're on Microsoft okay, and, you, and you're on a Windows 10, you can actually use um, Hello. It allows you to use facial recognition. A lot of us use now our thumbprint to access our iPhone. Use these or a password manager who generates a strong password, you don't need to remember them. And above all, don't write your password down. These, are, these may sound like some of the most basic and simple security controls you can put in place. Absolutely, they are basic because people do not do the basics. And if you do the basics, you cut out 80% of your vulnerability. That leaves the 20% to focus on the concentrated, advanced, persistent threat against you be that organized crime, be that nation state, be that competition or individuals. Now you're laser focused on that 20% because you've already cut out 80% of your vulnerability. You've reduced your risk profile. 
So back to that question, th these are some of the household caveats that I'll put in place right across my family or those that are representing these high net worth individuals. And I'll ask my third party as well. One of the essential things is whoever's working for you, who's ever engaging with your asset base, who's ever helping you with your lifestyle, check their security. They're third parties. Do a third party risk assessment on that vendor. How do you store my information? Who has access to my information? Where is it stored? Make sure also they're compliant. They're in simple terms to any legislation as well. In Europe, which has become like the grandfather or the grandmother of data privacy level legislation, you've got the general data protection regulation. Fundamental controls in there. Have a look at that and adopt some of the good practices. So let's talk about intermediaries, such as banks, for instance, uh, who have implemented systems and controls to try to mitigate against cybercrime for their clients. How well is it working? And how does this align across numerous jurisdictions in which banks and also these high net worth families operate? When we look at this uh, again, and we get back to that theme and sorry to keep banging this theme, what is valuable? Okay, from a bank perspective, we start from a client-centric position. So all the intermediaries in the financial sector and why do you say, you know, what are my clients' needs? And one of the most fundamental needs is trust. So you, you establish a trust by preserving and protecting the information, the data that they give us and any physical assets, but we're talking the information realm. So one of the key things that we do there is have a strategy a strategy that is based on that principle of security in depth, more than one control, signed off at the highest level. So you'd have proper representation at board level. Uh, and increasingly, cyber risk is not an, a technology issue. It's actually a boardroom issue now. You've got to say to yourself, this is a risk that we're all exposed to. And it's a risk that potentially not only exposes our client, but exposes the, the corporation as well. Because as I mentioned before, you have new legislation coming up and in existence, such as the general data protection regulation that is geared towards forcing and encouraging organizations to protect your information overall. There are fines associated if you have a data breach and you're negligent around this. Up to 4% of your turnover or 20 million or more overall, plus the reputational loss. So you'd start off, or we, we very much start off by developing a strategy. What are our threats? What are the risks associated with the information that we have overall? Then there's two sides to this. There's the human side and let's say the technology. From the technology perspective, we're trying to limit our exposure. So, so you'd have um, products that monitor emails, trying to pick up on malware, trying to pick up on phishing. That's um, to explain a phish, that's someone sends you an email and it contains malware or it contains a link that takes you to a site all geared towards defrauding you and getting access to your system. So if we use, for example, Microsoft, they're, they're monitoring uh, our emails or other products that you could use. It will filter out phishing or filter out malware overall. We would also then move on from that technology position into monitoring our networks. Who's in the networks? Who has access to them overall? Not everyone is allowed to connect corporately. And if they do connect, they have to have certain criteria in place. So say you've got your phone or your laptop, 
you'd have, and I think we're all familiar with antivirus. Let's use the key term, anti-malware on there. So if anything gets on to your, to your laptop, it will be detected and will send out an alert. But there's no point having an alert unless you respond. So there's been the rise of the security operation center where we've got people 24 seven, the industry would have, analyzing, seeing what threats come through, what alarms come through and being able to respond to them, having a proper incident response plan, which is key overall. So these are, and, and you know, we're into the age of AI now. So a lot of what we're doing is using artificial intelligence to monitor and to respond. So we have a number of protections that we can put in place, such as your encryption, as we've spoken about, such as um, your antivirus in place, such as monitoring and filtering out your phishing, your malware on this one, profiling individuals who have access to the network and how they behave in there, classifying data, stopping people accidentally sending information to the wrong people or trying to extricate that information from the system overall, doing deep dive, proactive threat hunting, looking for the bad guys continuously uh, and aggregating that and giving ourselves alert and a heads up to try and get ahead of the curve overall. So you can think of this in two spheres of activity. There's the prevent and there's the incident detection and response. I would say to you at this stage, collectively the industry is prevent peak, but we need to do more on detection and response. Make the assumption, and this is the, the, the sea change that we had to do in our mindset, that we've already been breached. So have a breach first strategy. And one of the key changes in the framework of our thinking is something called zero trust. And to put that in simple terms, it means to say, we trust in God, everything else we verify. Trust no one on our networks, trust no one getting into our system overall. And if there is an incident, the ability to contain and to respond, because nothing is 100%. We're all fallible and a greater emphasis on code. Because most of the problems we have is programmers. I'm going to blame you programmers. They code badly. Either the monoliths such as Microsoft, they you could see Microsoft is actually the arsonist because they create a lot of the problems for us in terms of the code and the products that they put out there, but they're also the fire brigade because they have a number of security tools allied to try and protect the information that we store. So banks, strategy and operational security, as well as teams that are highly skilled and understand the threat profile across the financial sector overall. So in terms of high net worth families, um, Many of the next generation family members are interested in digital transactions, cryptocurrencies. That creates another consideration for these families. What's your view in terms of how secure it is to transact using blockchain systems and cryptocurrencies? Cryptocurrencies, or more appropriately, digital assets are here to stay. They're, they're part of the financial landscape. What we're trying to work out very much so is where do they fit within that landscape and who has control of them? Because when you think about cryptocurrencies, you've got to talk blockchain uh, as well. That's the technology that drives it. Uh, and you know, if you think of the blockchain, which it is as a distributed ledger, that means to say, you know, your information is stored on more than one machine. And the key around here is the ability to encrypt and it doesn't change. It's immutable. Once I, you know, indelibly write your name in there for a transaction that does not get removed 
unless there's a legitimate removal overall, but it stays. That's the whole principle of it. So you have a complete audit trail or a history. It's called a blockchain because each time you add information, it links that information to another block and then owner's blocks uh, overall. So the reality is we've been operating in virtual money for some time. This is the money ecosystem. Even though we may have a dollar or a pound or a rand in our hand, it's not backed fully by gold. I cannot take that into the bank and go and get my gold for it. It's a principle of trust. You know, we want money to be our store of wealth and to transact. I actually call digital assets or cryptocurrency naked money because they make no hidden the truth about the fact that it's not backed by anything. It's a, it's a trust premise at this moment in time. But getting back to the technology, one of the key assets about it is that it's secure. It's fundamental. If you look at the breaches that have happened, and we've had one recently where a exchange was hacked and they took 260 million. It is the exchanges that are vulnerable, not the blockchain so much. And it's where you store your information. Sometimes it's online in the online wallets. They are vulnerable as well. This is the areas that you really need to focus on. How secure is it? Should I go cold wallet, take it offline altogether, store it on my USB stick and hide it away. But the technology is here to stay. It's going to mature in terms of how we use it. And one of the big differences that is happening in the maturity is around tokenization, whereby you know you may have an asset and you're able to break that up into decimal places and sell components of it. But once you've got it, it belongs to you because it's on the, the blockchain overall. We're looking at how cryptocurrencies have used the blockchain and saying, you know what, this is partly a model that also should be adopted for security as well, overall. But it is, but it is, it is key. I would recommend at this time, let's stop using the term currency because they're not, they're digital assets, they fluctuate too much. And we're going to move to a stage where you get flat money or flat digital currencies. The race is on in terms of control and regulation around the currencies. Because if you look and see what China has, it has one of the first government-backed central bank digital currencies. And this is about who controls the future landscape because it's the ecosystem of money. There's a competition rising. As an individual and as a high net worth uh, individuals, you look at it in two perspectives. Do I want to trade with this money or do I want to keep it as a store of wealth overall? And if I'm keeping it as a store of wealth, what security protocols need to be in place. Focus again on the exchanges that you're using. Focus again on your wallets, the security around that. If you get involved in tokenization as part of your digital assets, validate, 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 because there are a lot of people promoting tokenizations. And when you look there, there's not even an asset that's been tokenized overall. Sadly, Bitcoin has been the premier asset of choice for organized crime, and particularly those that are involved in ransomware. There has to be a clean out in terms of the surveillance around who uses and how we use our digital assets overall. Clearly the world of cybersecurity is fascinating. Thank you so much to Alphys for your invaluable advice. Thank you and goodbye.